if you are if you are in the habit already of taking notes, now whether that be detailed notes or just jotting down scripture references or anything like that, if you're in the habit of taking notes already, wonderful. If you're not in the habit of taking notes, I would highly encourage you. Uh, get out a pen or a piece of paper, or at the very least, you have my permission. Take out your cell phone, not to do, not to play Candy Crush or anything like that. Uh, but if you have your phone and all that you can do is text yourself or do a note on your phone with the scripture references, this would be a good day for that, as is every Sunday. But lastly, if you are a person who you have very much been enjoying, uh, the sermons or the teachings where you can see how different books of the scripture are interconnected and you can kind of see that common theme of redemption and salvation. Um, uh, I'm really encouraged that you'll appreciate the sermon this morning. We are going to mention a few different references. Uh, we're not going to turn to each of them. We will turn to a few. The sermon this morning is going to include um, much scripture reading i'm going to do my best it's not a guarantee i'm going to do my best not to belabor and drag out my own comments i want to teach through the verses obviously teach how they're connected but i don't want to belabor the comments or try to come up with example after example after example or anything like that so we will be reading from the word a good bit this morning which is a wonderful thing the theme if you want to have a theme in mind or a common thread in mind, it's simply this. The gospel. Salvation. We have been in Genesis now for weeks. We're all the way up to chapter uh, 9. Um, so we've been there for quite some time. <clears throat> when we went through Genesis 3, we made many notes, many connections uh, to the gospel story, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, even. Uh, we, we made those connections there in Genesis 3. But since today, uh, after the service, we are sharing a meal together. And it's, uh, as Bernard said, with, with Christmas approaching and we're in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, it would do us well. Even for those of us that would say, I was saved years ago. I've been in church 30, 40, 50 years. I'm very familiar with the gospel, uh, I would encourage you to contemplate the thought that as believers, we ought to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And so today, it would do us well to simply take a step back and ponder and meditate upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. How is it that we are saved? What is it? What is it that we believe as Christians? And we're going to use the fact that we've been in a Genesis study for the past few weeks as a launching pad for that. Because in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 14 of Genesis 3, the Lord God says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed him. Clothed them. Excuse me. Before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once more for this opportunity to gather and and now specifically to study your word. God, I pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified above uh, all other earthly names, above any of the cares or concerns we may have brought into the service with us this morning. God, I pray that through your spirit, you would help us fully focus our hearts and minds upon your word upon salvation, upon the person of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would grant to us knowledge and understanding of your word, that we would not just read it and talk about it, that I would not just preach it, but that all of us would understand that we would comprehend the treasures of your word. And we pray that you would receive the honor and the glory for it all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in what we just read, the serpent was cursed. You'll notice... To Eve and to Adam, neither one of them was cursed. There were repercussions. There was no curse. He didn't tell Eve, you're cursed. He didn't tell Adam, you're cursed. To the serpent, he was cursed. And there was a promise that his head would be crushed. To Eve, there was pain in childbearing. Desire contrary to her husband. To Adam, the ground was cursed because of him. The ground was cursed. But Adam himself was not cursed. And then we read through verse 21. In verse 21, there were garments made for Adam and Eve, and God God clothed them. So those are all of the important features that we want to mention there. Adam and Eve not cursed. The ground was cursed because of the sin of Adam. And there were coverings made. For Adam and Eve. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. When we were going through uh, Genesis 3 in our study. We mentioned of course that the way that the head of the serpent was going to be crushed. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent was ultimately Jesus Christ. And so all of the rest of scripture is directly connected to. Genesis. The person and the work of Jesus Christ is directly connected to the cursing of the serpent. When God says your head will be crushed. He will bruise your head. Your head will be crushed. That is a glimpse of the gospel right there in Genesis 3. When we look at Galatians 3, we see some more connections here. Remember Adam and Eve themselves were not cursed. Galatians 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. 
Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul here is making an argument that we, before God, we are not justified, we are not saved through our works, even our obedience to the law. That is not how one is made right with God. That is not how one is justified before God. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There is not a, a, a curse of hopelessness or a curse of damnation upon mankind. No, we would even say that when Christ came, he became a curse for us. By laying down his life and hanging on that tree, he became a curse for us. Jump down to verse 23, Galatians three twenty-three. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Notice what he said. You have put on Christ. Just as God made coverings for Adam and Eve in the garden, Christ in the garden, Christ is our covering. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. We are clothed in righteousness because of Christ and his finished work upon the cross. So you have, you have a fulfillment of what took place within the garden. Adam and Eve were not cursed. Adam was not told because of you, mankind is cursed. There will be no salvation. There will be no redemption. All of humanity, all of mankind is cursed. No. Adam was actually told, because of you, the ground is cursed. But when Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Word became flesh, when He laid down His life upon the cross, when He was hung on that tree, He became a curse for us. He took on and He received the wrath of God in place of the sinner, of all who ever believed. He became a curse for us. Not only that, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, um, those of us uh, who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He is our covering. All of our sin, all of our shame, uh, all of our hopelessness has been covered by the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, that was the first set of connections that I wanted to make this morning. Some other some other passages for you to consider. We're not turning to these. Other passages for you to consider if you would like to write them down. Would be Colossians chapter 3. Verses 9 through 12. Romans chapter 13. Specifically verse 14. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
verse 21. Now, if you would turn to Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah, of course, Old Testament. Book of Prophecy. But notice what it said here in chapter 53. There really can't be any mistake about who we are reading about from this chapter of Scripture. We're starting in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many To be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. In an effort not to start to unpack all of Isaiah 53, because that's not my aim this morning, I would simply say this. If you're a believer here this morning, what we just read should astound you, should humble you, should floor you, and any other saying that you could come up with. To know that it was the will of God to crush the Son for the sins of His people, which ultimately, if you're here today and you are a believer, then it was the will of God to crush the Son for your sins. Not to punish you for your own sin, but for Christ Himself to bear the punishment, to bear the penalty of your sin and of my sin. Each and every one of us should say with great confidence, we were and we still are unworthy. Of such a salvation. Unworthy of such a sacrifice. To be made. On our account. On our behalf. For the glory of God. 
We did not merit it. We did not earn it. Yet it was the will of God to crush the son. And even believer and non-believer alike. When we come across that statement. We say we should say. But why? Why was it the will of the Lord? To crush him. To crush the son. Why was that the plan? Because mankind. Due to the fall. That we just read about. In Genesis 3. Due to that fall. All mankind that has come after Adam. Is born in sin. Guilty before God. And if man, anyone, if any man, even if that man were to give his life in an effort to try to make himself right with God, that man would fall short. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot rightly pay the penalty for sin. We cannot justify ourselves before God. There is this great worldwide epidemic problem of sin. And if any of us want to stand rightly before God, that problem of sin must be dealt with. And we, in and of ourselves, in the flesh, all of mankind, we can do nothing to stop the sway of sin. So it was the will of the, God, the will of the Lord, will of God to crush him, the son, because that is what it took to fix the problem of sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could wash away the sin, could make atonement for the sins of the people. Only, only that sacrifice. The Son of God, fully man, fully God, laying down His life on behalf of the sheep, on behalf of all who would ever believe. Only that would satisfy the wrath of a holy God. You say, well, why is God so angry? Why does His wrath need to be satisfied? Because He is a just God. God must judge sin. If God did not judge sin, He would not be just. If He was not just, He would not be perfect. If He was not perfect, He would cease to be God. It's very important to understand that. When a sinner comes to Christ in faith, it's not as if God says, okay, I'll just forget about your sin. I'll just overlook your sin. When a sinner comes to Christ in faith, the proclamation is your sins have already been paid for. Your sin has already been atoned for. The penalty has already been paid. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. God is a just God. There is no sin that will ever go unpunished. When Christ died upon the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied for the sins of all who would ever believe. That's important for us to understand. There's a reason why Christ had to die upon the cross. If the wrath of God towards our sins had never been satisfied... We would have no reason of confidence to say that we can rightly stand before God. But because the penalty has been paid, because the price has been paid, because atonement has been made, Christ is our confidence that we can stand and say we're justified before a holy God. Briefly, quickly, let's look through some of the things that we just read from Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our, sor our sorrows. 
He was pierced for our transgression. Upon him was the chastisement. He received the chastisement that brought us peace. He was chastised. He received the punishment. We received peace. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. We were the guilty party, not him. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When Christ died upon the cross, it accomplished something. He will see his offspring. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53. I will bring this up because this is going to. We're going to revisit this topic towards the end of the sermon. In Isaiah 53, it says this. He bore the sins of many. This is the very end of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hold on to that, that he makes intercession. Hold on to that. We'll revisit it. But for sake of time and moving through here, we're going to go ahead and go to Hebrews 10. Turn to Hebrews 10, if you will. I contemplated going to John 10. If you want to write down John 10, that would be a wonderful place uh, to go to in your time of personal study. I thought about going to John 10 because it mentioned in Isaiah 53... All we like sheep have gone astray. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my own know me. And I will bring them in. I will bring them in. The sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. So I thought about going to John 10 for obvious reasons. So again, if you would like to write down John 10, it would be a wonderful place to go to. If you have a time of study later on today or later in the week. But ultimately I decided to go to Hebrews 10. And I believe it will be obvious why. Isaiah 53. is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has made an offering for guilt. His soul has made an offering for guilt. Briefly just by way of commentary. In the Old Testament. Many of us are familiar with the fact that there was a a sacrificial system. Sacrifices had to be made all the time. And the priest who oversaw these sacrifices, they, they stood at their office. They stood in their office, so to speak. They stood because the work was never done. The sacrifices had to be repeated at certain times throughout the year. There was free will offerings. There was things that could be done, but these sacrifices had to be made over. And over and over and over again. Because those sacrifices never really, genuinely, eternally fixed the problem of sin. All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were a foreshadowing of an offering and a sacrifice that was to come that would genuinely eternally fix the problem of sin. Now that's important. As we come to Hebrews 10, we're going to start in verse 1. 
Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrificial system works, religious works, can never make anyone perfect, can never fix the problem of sin. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Son. And by that body, by that sacrifice, by that offering, we have been sanctified through that offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament never fixed the problem of sin. But when Christ came by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that is proof in the fact that He was able to sit down. He took His place. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Why was it the will of the Father to crush the Son? What does it mean that He that he was pierced for our transgression. That he, he, he bore our sorrows. And that the chastisement that was on him is what brought us peace. What, why was that the purpose? What is the end result of all of that? The end result of all of that is all believers can stand and say confidently, we have the promise of God that he remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more. The penalty has been paid. The punishment has been Taken. We are saved. Saved from the wrath of God. 
we will never suffer the condemnation of God. Although that is what we in and of ourselves deserve because of Christ and His work, the finished work upon the cross, because of Christ and His righteousness, because of Christ and His obedience, because of Christ and His sacrifice, we have been made perfect. This is the gospel. This is salvation. Our salvation. And I want you to hear me. If you are a believer today. Each and every one of us needs to constantly remind ourselves. That our salvation has nothing to do. With us and our efforts and our works and our righteousness. If Christ. If his righteousness is not perfect. Then we have no hope of salvation. If Christ's obedience is not perfect, then we have no, work, no hope of salvation. If Christ's finished work upon the cross was not accepted by the Father, if it did not accomplish that which He set out to accomplish, we have no hope of salvation. It doesn't matter how hard we work. It doesn't matter how hard we strive. It doesn't matter how strong or great of a, of a will we have to try and please Him in our own strength. It doesn't matter. We are saved because of Christ alone. His work, the finished work upon the cross. It is His righteousness that's credited to our account. It is His obedience, even to the death of the cross, that has purchased our salvation. Purchased our redemption. We as believers, we serve and we seek to glorify God, not in an effort to be right with God, but we serve and we strive because we have already been made right with God. There's a world of difference there. Turn now, if you will, to John 3. I know as soon as I start reading... Many of us are going to say, we know these verses, we're familiar with them. I beg of you, don't, don't short circuit, don't look for a way out, don't tune out just because you're going to say, hey, I'm familiar with this, so we're good. Please, we're almost at the finish line. I know there's food back there. Hang with me for a few more minutes. John 3. And yes, you guessed it, 16. Okay? For God shall love the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay? Now I know, even if I didn't read that, I could have just asked you guys, what does John 3.16 say? And y'all would have been, y'all would have been ready. Right? A lot of people, if you were to ask them, what's the gospel? A lot of people would say, well, the gospel is, for God shall love the world, he gave His only Son that whoever believes will have eternal life. That's the gospel. And it is. That is a, a nutshell presentation of the gospel. But it is so very important for us to understand how that verse encapsulates the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. For what? What does that mean? Why did He have to give His Son? What's the point of that? 
I think we've covered that pretty well in this sermon. There's a problem of sin. Jesus Christ had to come. Jesus Christ had to be born. Jesus Christ had to lay down his life for the sheep. Or else the sheep would have no hope of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Well, where where did that thought come from? Why are people perishing? What in the world? What are we talking about here? Because we as Christians, we just take this verse for granted. And a lot of times we kind of disconnect this verse from the rest of scripture. But consider that you're a non-believer for a moment. And somebody comes to you and says, listen, I I only got a few minutes. I want to share the hope of Jesus Christ with you. And I want you to know something. God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. Should not die. The non-believer... Who's talking about death? Who's talking about perishing? You're going to have to explain to me why I need to be scared of perishing. You need to explain to me why I need to be worried or concerned about perishing. Well, it's the problem of sin. All are born guilty. All are born sinners under sin. Paul in Ephesians says that we are by nature children of wrath. Earlier in John 3, you just look up there a few more verses. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. We as Christians sometimes, we who claim to be believers, we kind of just, we start to gloss over John 3.16 and other verses of Scripture, but right now our focus is on John 3.16. If the work of Jesus Christ was not perfect, if Jesus Himself was not the perfect offering for sin. If he was not the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If Jesus Christ was not the good shepherd. If Jesus Christ is not the perfect son of God. None of us have a hope for salvation. And we can say with Paul. We of all people are most to be pitied. Because it's pathetic that we would meet here today. And celebrate Christ and worship God for sending Christ. If Jesus in fact is not that perfect Savior. Then our time is wasted here. Our time is wasted every Sunday. Our time is wasted each and every time we open up the Word. Our time is wasted each and every time we pray because we have no hope if Jesus is not the perfect Son of God. If He laying down His life, if He was not that perfect sacrifice, that perfect offering for the sins of the people. And if we have no hope, if Jesus is not who He says He is, if the work of Christ was not enough, we're all perishing. We're all perishing. We need to comprehend that. It would do us well to think on that. Our only hope is Christ. 
Again, His righteousness. His obedience. His offering. His sacrifice. His life is our only hope. And praise God that when Jesus, in speaking of Himself, in verse 15, or sorry, verses 14 and 15 of John 3, still in John 3, but in verses 14 and 15, He tells Nicodemus, He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then we have John 3.16 and many, many times we as Christians I'm not saying it's always intentional but because John 3.16 has so been pounded into our heads again, we start to get a little bit of tunnel vision and we read John 3.16 and it's just like whoo! We kind of forget the rest of John 3 is there. Keep reading. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Keep that word in mind. Condemn. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the rest. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes shall never perish, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, what about those who don't believe? Condemnation. They will receive the wrath of God. They will perish. See, so often when we present the Gospel, we only focus on the come to Jesus part. We say to the non-believer, we say, God has given His Son. All who believe will never perish. Come to Him. Believe. 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 God loves you. God wants you to be saved. Believe. And we never, we never get to the point where we tell, the, especially if they're going to walk away in their unbelief. We never get to the point where we tell them, know this. Know this. Those who don't believe. Yourself included. If you walk away today in your unbelief, you are condemned before God. And you will suffer the wrath of God. We never get to that point. And I know that many of y'all are probably thinking in your head, well, for good reason. I don't want to tell anybody that they're under the wrath of God. But they are. I'm not saying it should give you the, the warm fuzzies and you feels like you got butterflies in your tummy because it's just, oh man, I, but it's the truth. Those that are living in unbelief, in open rebellion against the Son of God, are under the wrath of God. And they are condemned already. Why? Well, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And one of the largest people groups that rejected the Son were the religious ones. They had all the religious works. They went to the temple. They worshipped in the synagogue. 
They knew the word. They knew the Old Testament. They knew it. Jesus said, your heart is far from it. But they knew the Old Testament. They had the religious works. They kept the law. They kept all of the rules that they were supposed to keep. And guess what? If they died in their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord, they perished. They perished. Too often, too often, and we'll start with ourselves, too often we'll convince ourselves, I'm going to church, I pray, I read my Bible, I'm trying to do right, I'm trying to do what I got to do, I'm working on my walk with the Lord, and I'm doing a good job, I'm trying my best, it's not going to get you to heaven, it's not going to justify you before a holy God. Your only hope is Christ. Your only hope is Christ. My only hope is Christ. If I was putting my faith in my works as a pastor. Well every week I get to prepare sermons. And I get to feed the people of God from the word of God. And I'm up there and I'm preaching. And I, and I tell people the gospel. And I, I encourage people to get saved. And I'm serving the community. And I'm. And I'm doing this and I'm doing that. When I'm at home, I read my Bible and I'm doing this and so on and so forth. And my faith was in that. I'm being a good pastor. I'm being a good Christian. If that was all I had was my faith in my religious works, then when I stand before God, I'll be cast aside. Because my hope and my faith cannot be In this standing before you and teaching. It cannot be in any of my efforts. Any of my works. Our faith. We are called to have faith in Him. In Christ. We do all of these other things. Because of our faith in Him. And that we are saved through Him. So there ought to be great joy in coming to worship. There ought to be great joy in Bible study. There ought to be great joy in prayer, in lifting our, song, or lifting our voices in song. There ought to be great joy in fellowship. There ought to be great joy in that because we understand all of us are the recipients of grace that has been bestowed upon us through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. I know that many of us here this morning would say, we've gone to church for years. We've always been in church. We've done this. We've done that. All I'm asking you to do today is sincerely consider. Take time this week. Examine your life. All Christians, all professing believers, we ought to be in the habit of examining ourselves frequently. Not to the point of exhaustion and not to the point of desperation, But we ought to occasionally examine ourselves to see whether or not we are of the faith. What is our faith truly in? Why do we go to church? Why do we worship? Why do we have a Bible at home? Why do we read it? Why do we pray? Romans 8. We're closing with this. Romans 8. Those who believe will never perish, but have everlasting life. 
Those who do not believe are condemned already. Somebody may say, well, I don't want to be condemned before God. What are my options? Christ alone. Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the reason why. Everything we've talked about this morning. I know that we've talked about a lot this morning. Again, I hope that we have those that are in the habits of taking notes. The sermon's going to be recorded. You can listen to it later on. But everything we've talked about today, why is it, why is it true that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Here's why. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Because those that are in Christ Jesus, His work has accomplished our salvation. His work has set us free from the penalty of sin. His work has set us free from condemnation. Christ's work upon the cross did what the law could never do. It set us free from the law of sin and death. Outside of Christ, there is only condemnation. Outside of Christ, there is only condemnation. And only in Christ is there no condemnation. So we've looked really at a a few different pictures representations of the gospel, but it all hinges upon the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right there in Genesis 3, right where it all began, God said, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed, and you'll bruise his heel, he's going to bruise your head. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have that fulfilled. The head of the serpent has been crushed. Sin and death have been defeated for all who believe. Well, what about those who don't believe? They are still yet under the condemnation and the wrath of God. Well, is there any hope for people who don't believe? Is there any hope for them to escape the wrath of God? Yes, only in Christ Jesus. Repent. Believe. Still in Romans 8. We're going to close with this. Especially for the believers. I want you to really set your mind on this. And think about this. There's no condemnation. Imagine you were in a courtroom setting. Somebody was trying to accuse you of stuff. Trying to throw at you. Well I know Roy and I know he's done this. Well I know Bernard and I know he's done this. Well I know you name it. I know Caleb Folsom and I know he's done fill in the blank. No condemnation though. Why? Verse 31 of Romans 8. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, think about that. If God has looked upon any of us, I'll use myself because it's the safest example to use. (laughs) If God has looked upon Caleb Folsom and said, justified, then it doesn't matter if Larry, Kristen, my wife, any of my family members, anybody, it doesn't matter what accusations they try to throw up or sling up and say, well, I know he's done this, he's guilty of this. God has already declared justified. So who can bring a charge? Who can bring a charge so great that it overrules God's declaration of justified? Nobody. Who is there to condemn? Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you are, if you're saved today, if you're a believer today, you can have great confidence that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The redemption of God's people is the very reason He laid down His life for the sheep. And not only that, He is raised. And now what He is doing is sit, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of the saints. Oh wait, that's Isaiah 53 too. So you see the connection there. He's interceding on behalf of the saints. So who is there to condemn? Jesus certainly isn't going to say, that's right, Father. I forgot about that. They're condemned. No, He's interceding for us. Interceding on our behalf. So let's get back to this topic of, I know so and so. I know what they're guilty of. I know what they've done. The response to any of those accusations for God's people, for God's children, God would say to the accuser, paid in full. Paid for. That sin has already been punished. Because here's the thing. If, if somebody says bad stuff about us, that's true. We would have to say, well, yeah, that's true. I did do that. Yeah, that's true. I said that. Yeah, that's true. I lied about that. Yeah, that's true. I tried to hide that. And those are the sins for which Christ died. And they've been punished. And in that moment, when we when we come to when we start to think about that, we start to realize, whoa, I deserve to be punished for those things. All the lies I've ever told, all the truth that I've ever withheld, all the any time that I've ever been sneaky in my life and tried to cover something up, any deceitfulness in my life, anything that I've ever any hatred that I've harbored towards other people, any unforgiveness that I've harbored towards other people, I deserve to be punished. And for God's children, the response is that sin has been punished, but you didn't pay for it. Christ did. Christ did. 
The Christian ought to be fully aware of who we are in the flesh. We ought to be fully aware of who we are in the flesh. There dwells no good thing. We also ought to be fully aware of who we are because of Christ. Who is there to bring a charge? Who is there to condemn? The answer, of course, is no one. And Christ Himself is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. You say, Caleb, why was this important for you to talk about all this today? Why was it important for you to preach on this? Why don't we just keep going through our regular old Genesis study? Well, Christmas is coming. And once more, all too often, Christians, we start to say the slogan. We start to say the stuff that we know we're supposed to say. Hey, don't forget the reason for the season. Don't forget that it's all about Christ. And those things are true. But yet it's very easy for us to slip into going about Christmas and participating in Christmas for all of the same reasons that the world celebrates Christmas. Well, how many gifts do we get our kids? Have we bought them this? Should we buy them this? Should we buy them that? Get them one gift. Who cares? Like, Get them one gift. Give them ten gifts. Do, do, do our children know the reason why Christ came? Well, what am I going to take to family dinner? You know, we got we got Christmas at this family members on Christmas Eve. We got family at this, we got Christmas at this family members on Christmas Eve. What am I going to cook? What am I going to buy? What am I? Who cares? Who cares? You say, preacher, that's not not now. Everybody loves my roast that I make every year at Christmas. That is not nice. I love. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about it, but recognize it for what it is. Do all of your family members know the reason why Christ has come? Can we not focus our hearts and minds upon what truly matters? Not just at Christmas time, but all year round. Take whatever you want to take to the Christmas party. But understand that God has given you family members and friends and co-workers and we ought to be sharing truth with them, sharing the gospel with them, making sure. Here's what's most important. When you gather with your family this year at Christmas, make sure that God is glorified. That's it. Make sure that God is glorified through magnifying the name of the Son. That's it. When you gather with your co-workers, if you work at a business that has a Christmas party, you do your best to make sure that God is truly glorified at that Christmas get-together. Another reason why this is always important. Believer or non-believer, whatever you, if you're here today and you say, I know that I'm saved, I know I'm a believer, I've got confidence in that. Wonderful and amen. If you're here today and in your head you're thinking, I'm really not sure about all this. I just come to church because I've always kind of come to church. I don't really know. Believer or non-believer. What we've talked about today. There is good news that Jesus Christ has come. And he has fixed the problem of sin. He has paid the penalty for sin. He has made atonement for the sins of all who believe. 
Those who don't believe are condemned already. And they will answer to God. And they will receive the wrath of God. But while the Lord tarries His return, and as long as there's breath in the lungs of an unbeliever, the promise still remains, all who come to Christ in repentance and faith, all who believe will be saved. And we ought to remind ourselves of that daily. And we ought to share that with others daily. In the garden, we went from Genesis 3 to Galatians 3. We went from Isaiah 53 to Hebrews 10. We went from John 3 to Romans 8. I pray that the Word of God and the Spirit of God has been a blessing to you this morning. I pray that we would take these things and meditate upon them and ponder them. I pray that God would um, would have His will and His way with the preaching and teaching of His Word. I pray for the believer that our faith has been strengthened. I pray for the unbeliever that God would use His Word today, that He would minister to you, that the Spirit would wash you in regeneration, and today would be the day of your salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer.